Well, good morning, people of God. To those of you that are online and those that are here, I tell you, it's a privilege to bring the Word of God to you today. We, we are going to be reading from Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14, and is our, is our good custom here. I'm going to invite you to stand where you are in honor of the reading of the Word of God. Titus 2, beginning in verse 11. I'm reading from the ESV, which I think is on the screen also. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Would you pray with me? And Father, we're acknowledging this morning that we all have a need. I, I know my need acutely, Lord, but I think we all have a need this morning to sit under the preaching of the Word of God, to have ears to hear, eyes to see, minds to understand. So we're asking, Holy Spirit, that you would take this Word and you would illuminate it to our understanding, that we would understand you, know you as our God more fully that you'd be glorified in and through our lives, Father, that's our prayer through the preaching of the word today. So we offer it back to you, we offer ourselves back to you, in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. You know, as I travel and teach throughout Africa, I'm confronted by what I would call two extremes when it comes to both understanding the grace of God and living life by the grace of God. One of those extremes, is rampant in Africa, is in America, but is rampant in Africa. I'm going to use the term legalism to describe it. Legalism is when we come to faith in Christ for our salvation, but then we seek to live the Christian life by outward laws. These laws are expressed in different ways, but usually they're a list of do's and don'ts that if you're a good, well-meaning Christian, you do and don't do certain things. If you're not, you do, and don't, you, you, you do those things or don't do those things. So that's how they define the Christian life. The main message on Sunday morning in legalistic churches is try harder. Try harder. Try harder. Almost every week there's a different version of that same message, but it's a false understanding of both the gospel and the grace of God. Because it simply doesn't work. You're a well-meaning Christian. You, you, we want to live the Christian life in a way that pleases the Lord. That's the desire of your heart. But just me telling you to try harder won't cause you to live a godly life. It, it doesn't work that way. It's sort of like me saying to you right now, I'll give you a simple example. I don't want any of you to think of bananas. Don't think of bananas, don't think of bananas, don't think of bananas. Now, I already know what you're thinking of. That's the way it works. Me telling you not to do something is just not enough for you. It's not, you don't have the ability in and of yourselves to live a life that pleases the Lord. That's true of the Christian life. You don't live the Christian life in your own strength. It's by the grace of God as part of the point of the message today. It's impossible to live on your own. Now the other extreme that I see, and it's getting more and more popular in Africa, and I see it in teachings here in the U.S. also, is what I call cheap grace. Cheap grace means that Jesus has forgiven all of my sin as a Christian. Praise God. So far, so good. But then they say, 
so I can live however I want to live my life and then plug in my Jesus forgives debit card and it's okay. It's a false understanding of the gospel and of grace because it doesn't matter how you live because it's all forgiven is what cheap grace says. You can sleep with those, whoever you want to sleep with before you're married and it's okay because Jesus forgives me. You can cheat on your income taxes and it's okay because Jesus forgives me. It's how it's played out in the minds and thinkings of this false understanding of grace. So we go to church a few more times, we say, pray, pray a bit more, and presto, all your sin is forgiven and there's no consequences in cheap grace. That isn't what the gospel teaches us today. So both legalism and cheap grace are false understandings of the gospel of God and of, of, of grace itself. And I want to look carefully at a great text this morning out of Titus chapter 2, which gives you the right picture and perspective on the grace of God. Here's our theme idea, that as we understand the fullness of God's grace, we marvel at his grace and we're empowered by this grace to live our lives in a way that pleases the Lord. That's our theme idea today. Now in our text today, the context, which you should always look at context when you're studying a passage of scripture, the context is Paul has spoken to different groups of people, older men, older women, younger men servants, and he's given them some instructions on how to live their lives in light of the gospel that they've received. It has to do with the lifestyle that we live. That's the context that he tells them. And the first thing that he tells them when he moves to this, our understanding of why we live this way, is that he tells them that the grace of God has appeared, that's the subject and verb in this one long sentence, verses 11 and 14, the grace of God appeared. That's, that's the subject and the verb. That's the main idea of the whole text. But it appeared first to bring salvation. I, I heard Dan Sonnenberg use this passage last week, Ephesians 2.8. It's a great passage. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. So God gave you faith in the first place to believe the gospel, opened your eyes and ears to the gospel so you could respond to him by faith. That's how grace of God works. Now grace, as many of you know, is God's favor and kindness shown to us despite the fact that we deserve the opposite. I, and you by the way also, I've earned the just judgment of God. That's what I deserve from a holy, holy, holy God. I've not earned, I certainly don't deserve the kindness and favor of God, but despite this truth, the Lord delights to shower me, to pour out his favor and his goodness upon me. Now grace is not in small quantity. Grace is poured out. And, and I've used this analogy before, probably in a sermon here, because I use it often because it's so meaningful to me personally. That the, the, the picture I have of the grace of God is of a, a waterfall cascading over the side of a cliff. And the way you receive, that's the grace of God, the way you receive that grace of God is you stand under it. And when I'm struggling, I'll tell you, when I'm struggling, I picture myself just standing under the grace of God like that in, that, in that picture. To receive, because that's all you do, you haven't earned it, you don't deserve it, you receive the grace of God for yourselves. The grace was poured out over you just like that to give you faith to believe the gospel. Also, think about this, the grace of God was poured out over the person who shared the gospel with you in the first place to give them the desire to share the gospel, the ability to share the gospel with you so you could believe the gospel. 
That's how the grace of God works. It works in, in, in every facet of our lives. Because it wasn't the person who led you to Christ, it wasn't their great words. That's not it that led you to Christ. No, it, it, it's a work of the Spirit of God, working through the Word of God in a heart that God has prepared to receive and respond to the Word of God. Then you say yes to the gospel. This is why the Apostle Paul declares here that the grace of God has appeared and brings you your salvation. It's also why no one can boast, Ephesians 2.9, no one can boast that they're born again. You can't say, look at me, look what I've done, look how righteous I am. You, you, you can't say that because the only reason you're righteous in God's sight is because he poured out his grace upon you in order for you to respond to the gospel in the first place. So it's, it's, it's all about God and his grace, which has been given to you. If God had not poured out his abundant grace upon you, you would not be saved. And so the picture we need to have of God is him delighting to give you the gift of grace so you can come to know him. And then secondly, once you come to know him, his grace is still poured out upon you every day. Hallelujah. Now, I come from Africa, so I'm used to amens. Okay. <laughs> okay. All right. That's our second point this morning. The grace of God empowers us to live righteous lives. So many people, even born-again Christians I meet, have a wrong picture of God, which is communicated to us, often by well-meaning preachers, but they preach what I call the law. They preach condemnation. You're sinning, stop doing this. You're sinning, stop doing that. that that's, that's, that's the way the preaching sort of flows often in Africa. Now, it might be true. It might be true what they're saying might be true. But they miss, they miss the point of grace and miss the point of the gospel. You see, the law is good, right? The law is good. It's not bad. Because the law reflects the holiness of the Lord our God. It, it teaches us what God requires of us as his children. So the law is not bad. It's good. But the law was never intended to save you. The law was to show you your sin so you would see your need for a savior. That's the whole idea behind the law. If you've broken the law at one point, according to the scriptures, you've broken the whole law because the law is one. You can't separate the law into different pieces. And the truth of it is, is that everybody here today, definitely myself included, we sin multiple times every day, at least in our attitudes, in our minds, if not in our actions and our words. The truth is that we struggle with sin. And the law points you to the fact that that you need a savior. Now, I use the law primarily with non-Christians. That's how I use the law. Because what the law does is, again, it points to the standard that God has set. And so I explain the law the way that Jesus explains it in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. He says things like, if you're angry with a person, you've committed murder in your heart. If you look at a woman with lustful intent, you've committed adultery, where? In your heart. If you look at the Ten Commandments like that, we've all broken all the Ten Commandments many times. In fact, some of you were probably angry with somebody before you got here today. <laughs> okay, okay, all right. We all struggle with sin. Everybody here, everybody listening, we, we, we struggle with our flesh. That's true. But that's why legalism doesn't work. Legalism, again, looking at the outside of a person to define whether they're righteous or not. It's God's grace poured out over us which empowers us to not sin. That's what verse 12 says if you look at it. It trains us to renounce, or your translation may have, to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. That's what the grace of God does inside of you. 
Praise God that that's true. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. It's the grace of God that does that work. It's not me saying, stop sinning. That's not, that doesn't work. We've already shown you that. It's the grace of God working inside of us to mold us and to make us more into the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, most of you here today are born again. If you're not, we would love to talk with you after the service today to help you make that step of faith to, to know him as your Lord and God. Most of you are, are born again, but I'll tell you, in your life and in my life, I believe every Christian has weak areas. I don't know what that is for you, and that's, that's fine. That's the Holy Spirit's job, not my job. Worry, fear, lust, anger, Whatever that is, I don't know what that is for you, but everybody has a tendency to struggle in a certain area of their life. And you make this promise to God, God, I won't do that anymore. But then the next day, you fall back into the same thing. Okay? You don't want to. It's not the desire of your heart, you understand. You, you want to live a life that pleases Jesus, but, but you struggle in that one area or maybe two areas. How do you stop sinning in this way? Well, the answer is in the text today. It's a work of the grace of God inside of you as you choose to cooperate with the Holy Spirit by participating in the means of grace. You know the means of grace? Of course, the Lord's Supper is one means of grace we do on Sunday morning, but the means of grace Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday for you is the word of God in prayer. Those are means God uses to work a work of grace inside of you than to empower you to not sin in a way that you've been sinning. It's a change that the Holy Spirit is doing within you. Hallelujah. I need an amen. Okay, thank you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> now, the Apostle Paul, he struggled with sin. Romans 7, he's a believer. I think the text is pretty clear. He's a believer. The Apostle Paul in Romans 7.15 says this. Listen, I just want to remind you. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And a few verses later, Paul exclaims in verse 24 and 25, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Then he says this, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Hallelujah. That's me, okay, he's talking about right there, okay. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. He's resting in the grace of God. Yes, we cooperate with the Holy Spirit to do what the Lord desires for us to do, but ultimately it's a work of the Spirit of God within you as you open yourself, open your heart, open your life up to the work of the Spirit of God in and through you. That's the way the Holy Spirit works in us. And I want you to think about it like this. This is a little different way to think about the same thing. Your Lord loves you. I mean perfectly right now, right where you are. You might be thinking of what you did this morning and you shouldn't have done, whatever. Forget that. The Lord's love for you is perfect right now. Amen? I mean perfect. It's complete. There's nothing you can do to make him love you more. He loves you right where you are in this moment. And so we celebrate that truth. But because he loves you, he wants what's absolutely the best thing for you. That's what he wants for you. That's what love means, isn't it? What he wants for you is to live a lifestyle that does not give in to ungodliness or worldly passions. He wants you to live a lifestyle that is, has self-control, is godly, is upright in his sight. Why? Because he loves you. That's the whole idea behind the heart of God here. Some people have this idea that God's a killjoy. 
the opposite of that is actually true. God, God loves you and wants the best thing for you, which is to walk in holiness. Sometimes the way the gospel is presented in legalistic settings, it sounds like bad news. It doesn't sound like good news. You want me to give up my friends? You want me to give up all the things that I enjoy? That's what you want me to do to come, come to know Jesus? Is that what you're telling me? It doesn't sound like good news. But when you understand grace as it's understood in the scriptures, it's good news. See, the God who knows you, who made you, who loves you perfectly, he wants you to have the best life possible. That's to live a godly life. That's the best life you can live, you see. When I was in high school, I'd prayed to receive Christ as a boy of six years old. And it was authentic. I mean, it was, it was a childlike faith, but it was, it was authentic. But when I got to high school, I saw the party, party stuff going on, you know, and so I wanted to be in. I wanted to be in the in crowd. So I joined the, the, the party scene. I was one of the athletes in the school, you know, one of those kind of, kind of jocks, you know, <laughs> that's who I was. And so I joined the party atmosphere. And so Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday during the day at least, I tried to live like a Christian. And on Friday night and Saturday night, I lived like a pagan. That's the way I lived. And I hated that lifestyle, I'll tell you, because I felt pulled both directions, like I was living two separate lives, like I, I was a hypocrite, like I, I was hypocritical, you know, that, that I didn't really live what I believed, and I struggled with that kind of lifestyle until when I got to college, I met some real Christians. Not that I didn't before, but these guys really lived the gospel, praise God. And it gave me a whole new understanding of the gospel. It became really good news for me because not only was I saved eternally, praise God, not only was all my sin forgiven, praise God, but I now had the ability by the Spirit within me to live a holy, joyful life in Christ. Hallelujah. That's part of the reason that cheap grace is a lie from the pit. As I've mentioned, cheap grace cheats you out of the love and joy and peace the Lord intends for you to have as a follower of Jesus Christ when you live a lifestyle that reflects who you are in Christ. As a born-again Christian, you have freedom. I'm, I'm free. Hallelujah. I'm free. I'm free from guilt. Why? Because God's given me grace to live a holy life. I don't do it perfectly. You don't either. Okay? But I seek to do that. And so we're, we're free from guilt. We're free from the struggle we used to be in when we lived a lifestyle that did not please the Lord. You know, as a, as a Christian, you can choose to live an ungodly lifestyle. It doesn't help you. It won't lead to peace and joy in life. In fact, I know professing Christians, you may too. I know professing Christians who are living together before the bond of marriage. I, I know professing Christians like that. What, what's, what's going on? Well, one of two things is going on with their lives. Either, number one, they pray to prayer with their minds, but they're not truly born again. That's possible. You, you understand. To be truly born again, you believe the gospel with your mind. You receive Jesus Christ into your heart to, to have your sin forgiven. That, that's, that's a born again Christian. So that's possible. But the other possibility is, the second possibility is, is that and many people who are born again have believed the lie. The lie is that Jesus loves them so doesn't judge them or care about how they live. That's a lie. Jesus is holy as well as loving. He's both of these things. Jesus does love you more deeply than you understand, but he's absolutely holy, absolutely pure. He wants you to know his purity as well as his love. He wants you to know both of these things. He wants you to experience both of these things. I hear Christians that 
talk about Jesus coming back. Praise God. Praise God. Okay. But they're, they're, they're anticipating. They're, they're joyful. They, they're, they're inviting Jesus to come back, which I think is right. I think we do that as followers of Christ. Okay. But they don't see one key point. When Jesus comes back as an awesome judge of the universe, which is the way he's coming back, they miss verses like Revelation 1-7. Let me remind you of what that says. Look, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, and those who pierced him. And all the peoples on earth will mourn, will mourn because of him. That's what it says. That's what the text says. So shall it be. Amen. Why do, why do we mourn? Why are we mourning? Jesus is coming back. Why are we mourning? Because we're seeing holiness as it truly is. We're seeing our life. You remember the prophet Isaiah. When Isaiah, who was a holy, holy man, when he saw the Lord high and lifted up, and in his holiness, he fell on his face and said to the Lord, said to the Lord, woe to me, for I'm a sinful man. Depart from me. That's the way it works, my dear friends. I'll never forget a student named Greg, when I was at UNC Chapel Hill many years ago working with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, it was during a Billy Graham crusade, and I was one of the prayer counselors up front during the Billy Graham crusade. And Dr. Graham had led, you know, had the sermon, and people had responded to the gospel, and Greg and many others had responded to the gospel, praise God. And Greg came up to me as a prayer counselor, and I, I shared the gospel with him again. We were trained to do it this way, but it's, it's right. I shared the gospel again to make sure he understood it, led him in a prayer again to make sure that he had prayed the prayer that Dr. Graham had prayed. I gave him a little bit of counsel, got his contact information on a little card, prayed for him, and we said goodbye. Well, it was about a week later, we got back together again, and I asked Greg, Greg, how are things going? He said, everything's changed. I feel, he said something, he didn't know how to describe it. I feel something new, it's like, joy or something. I don't know what it is. <laughs> Hallelujah. All right. We know what that is. That's the Holy Spirit. That's what I told him. I said, that's the Holy Spirit. He said, I, 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 I used to, he said, I'm a member of a fraternity and I used to want to get drunk, but I don't even want to get drunk anymore. I'm like, praise God. He says, like something's changed inside of me. I said, that's exactly what's taken place. That's exactly what's happened. Your new creation in Christ, the old's gone, the new has come. And so you're going to have more joy, more goodness, more peace as you continue to walk with him. And then I told him, it's possible for you to go back to your old lifestyle and do what you used to do, but you'll miss out on these good gifts that the Lord wants to give to you. And Greg said to me, without hesitating, why would anyone want to do that? Praise God. They're missing out on something much better. And of course, I said, amen. <laughs> Which brings us to our last point this morning that's in the text, verse 13 to 14. Because this same grace that's been poured out over us and continues to be poured out over us, and again, I say hallelujah to that, okay, causes us to wait expectantly for the return of our Lord Jesus. Now, Christians, whether you're online or, or here this morning, let me just say it this way. We shouldn't live our lifestyle as if this is our home. This is not your home. This is not your home, amen? This is not your home. Your home is with Jesus in heaven. We need to live in such a way as if people see our home is not here, our home is in heaven. Too many Christians are trying to make their home here rather than their home in heaven. When cultures make fun of Christians for living as we should live, it shouldn't surprise us. If a culture is making fun of you for being a follower of Jesus, praise God. Because our hope 
here it says our blessed hope, that's what, it, that's what he calls it in, the, in verse 13, our hope is on the return of Jesus. Now hope, biblically, remember, doesn't mean maybe, that's how the culture defines the word hope, but that's not how the Bible defines the word hope. The Bible defines the word hope as 100% certain, I just don't have it in my hand yet. That's the way the Bible defines hope. And so it's a guarantee, it's a promise that Jesus is going to return. There's no doubt about the truth of this, especially when things aren't going well for you or things aren't going well in the culture. It seems to me like the culture is getting more and more ungodly, in which we live in America, is getting more and more ungodly every week. That's what it seems like to me. I don't know what your perspective is on that. But no matter what's happening in your personal life, no matter, no matter the struggle, no matter the struggle of the culture in which we live, it doesn't change the truth that we are God's people and we are waiting with expectant hope for the return of our Lord Jesus. Amen? That's the truth of the gospel, my dear friends. It doesn't affect our hope because we rest upon the promise of God. And notice in verse 13, if you have your Bible still open, there's a clear statement about the deity of Jesus Christ here. Jesus Christ is our great God and Savior who will appear in glory, is what it says, literally. The same Jesus offered himself for us to purchase us, redeem us, that's the word, purchase us out of slavery to sin, to Satan, to lawlessness. Before you knew Christ, before I came to know Christ, literally I was a slave to sin. That's what the Bible says. Sin was my master, in other words. Sin was your master before you came to know Christ. But now in Christ, you've been redeemed, you've been purchased out of that. That's no longer who you are. You don't have to live anymore according to who you used to be. Hallelujah. We couldn't get free on our own, but Jesus is doing that work of, of redemption inside of us. It's the work of Jesus Christ alone who's freed us and claimed us so we would belong to him. We're now his possession is what verse 14 says. And then what do we do while we're waiting? That's, that's the end of verse 14. What do we do while we're waiting for the return of our Lord? What the text says is we zealously do good works. Now I want to pause here for just a moment. I, I think, at least historically, what, what's happened is the liberal church has, has redefined salvation in terms of doing good works, basically. And so the evangelical church, that's me, okay, that's us, okay, those who believe the Bible is the word of God, the evangelical church has sort of backed away from this idea of good, doing good works because we don't want to be like the liberal church. Now, good works don't save you. Okay, we're, we're clear in this point, right? Yes? Good work, they, they don't save you. They can't save you. They won't save you. That's true, biblically. However, it's also true that everything we do as a follower of Jesus Christ, the result of our salvation is good works. Amen? I need amen. <laughs> okay, <laughs> all right. The result of your salvation is that you zealously do good works. That's what the text says. That's what it means. That's what it's talking about. Mother Teresa said, never worry about numbers. Help one person at a time and always start with a person nearest you. Praise God. I think that's right. I think that's what this is talking about. When we replanted North Grove Church, some of you know that story, in Hampstead as Grace EPC several years ago, some of the kids who we had reached with the gospel from the North Grove area, we'd, we'd reached many children with the gospel, praise God, had come to faith in Christ. And they were up with us in the building in Hampstead. And one of the mothers of one of these kids comes into the building to pick up her daughter, who's there. Cindy's her name. She's not, she's not a believer. And she said, sort of, it wasn't just thoughtful thinking about it. It just sort of 
splurted out, wow, everybody's so happy here. That's what she said. And I said, praise God, that's good. I said, why don't you stay and enjoy this with us? And then she looked down at her clothes. Oh, she had on work clothes, okay? And in her mind, if you wear work clothes, you can't come to church activities. That, that, was, that was a stumbling block. This was a few years ago, but it was a stumbling block for her. And I said, we don't care what you're dressed like. It doesn't matter to us. We, we still want you to stay. Well, she couldn't get past this idea of how she was dressed, okay? So she didn't stay. However, I, I want to just point out her natural response. Her natural response was, wow, why is everybody so happy here? We weren't trying to do good works, do you understand? We weren't, we weren't like trying to be holy people. That wasn't it. It, it, was, it was a work of the Spirit of God inside of a people who've been set apart by Christ, who were just living our lives in fellowship with one another. That's what was taking place. It's a, it's a, in other words, it's a natural, good work should be a natural response from those of us who belong to Jesus Christ. We should be hungry, zealous to do these good works so that Jesus Christ is glorified. It should flow very naturally from us. You see, it isn't us, it's Jesus. It's Jesus in you who will put things in your mind and heart of ways that you can help your neighbor or your friend or your workmate or whoever that is. Now, it all starts with properly understanding the grace of God. I haven't earned it. I certainly don't deserve it. But he delights to pour his grace over me as I seek him in his word and prayer. These are the means of grace. Remember, the means of grace. If you're not taking advantage of the means of grace, you might be missing out on some of the goodness God has for you. He loves you right where you are. And he wants you to have more of his goodness and grace. But we need to take advantage of the means he's given to us. He longs to pour out this grace through us to others as we step out in faith and do good works that he's called us to do. Every time you turn your mind, your, your, your focus back to the Lord Jesus, he's there. His grace is there. He'll meet you right there every time without exception. D don't worry about if you can feel it or not. That's not the point. He's there. He's with you. That's his promise of his word. There's a true story of a woman who tried to assassinate the first queen of Elizabeth many, many years ago. This woman, she dressed as a male page and got on as part of the queen's entourage and she waited for the right moment to stab the queen. In fact, one night she hid herself in the queen's uh, area and had a dagger under her cloak. And they found her, because they always searched the queen's area before she went to bed at night. They found her and they found the dagger. She, she knew she was done for. Humanly speaking, she had no hope, actually. So when the queen, she met before the queen, she got down on her knees and begged the queen to show her grace. Queen Elizabeth quietly looked at her and said, if I show you grace, what promise will you make for the future? The woman looked up and said, grace that has conditions is not grace at all. Huh, that's pretty insightful. The queen understood. She said, you're right. I pardon you of my grace. That's what she did. So the woman walked away a free person. But it's said in history, there was no more devoted person to the queen because of the grace that had been shown to her. That's you and me. That's me. That's me. There's no more devoted person to my king because of the grace that's been poured out over me out of thanksgiving, you see. We serve our Lord zealously to do whatever it is he asks us to do. I go to Africa. We're leaving in about 10 days to go to Africa again. I, I don't love going to Africa. I'm just being honest. I love Africans, but I don't love going to Africa. It's, it's, it's actually difficult. Why do you do it? Because of the call of God. 
That's, that's, that's the reason. It's not Brian. It's the Holy Spirit. That's who it is. It's Jesus. That's who it is. It's, 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 it's out of thanksgiving that we respond to the grace of God. Would you pray with me? And Lord, I thank you so, so much for the grace of God that's been poured out in my life. Lord, far, far, far beyond anything I ever deserved. And I acknowledge that's true. And I thank you for my dear brothers and sisters, Lord, who are gathered here this morning, Lord. And we simply acknowledge that grace, Lord, has been poured out over us. We acknowledge with thanksgiving how you've worked, Lord, far beyond anything we could even ask or imagine. Now help us receive fully to understand correctly your grace, Lord. Help us stand under that waterfall of your grace. In fact, forgive us, Lord, for places where we've thought wrongly in ways that have hurt us or hurt our testimony or hurt the church. Forgive us. And as we seek you, we thank you, Lord. Give us grace to zealously do good works, Lord, that reflect who we now are in Christ. Father, we ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.